Hey everybody, Bob here. I just want to take a second to remind you guys that we love getting feedback from you in the form of your phone calls and your voice messages on our Anchor.fm webpage. We got some great feedback from last week's episode on Citizen Kane, including one from our friend Austin at Bourboneering on Instagram. Let's listen to what he said about Citizen Kane. Hey guys, I was going to call immediately after I heard the Citizen Kane episode and complain because I thought it was awful and slow and boring. But I had a change of heart and I decided after listening to the episode to rewatch the movie, taking y'all's tips to concentrate on it and not be distracted by other things. And I'm having the opposite experience that I had with Back to the Future. But Back to the Future, I love that movie going into your episode and then I rewatched it after and it was it ruined it for me. And I'm having the opposite experience here. I'm rewatching Citizen Kane and I'm actually enjoying it. Now I still think it's dry and not nearly the best movie ever but it's it's not awful i I, i'm enjoying it i would watch it again thanks guys cheers well we want to say thank you to austin and we want to remind you guys please send us your feedback on our episodes and in fact if you send us a voicemail between now and next monday that's september 21st you will be automatically entered to win a digital copy of alfred hitchcock's psycho in our giveaway with universal studios home entertainment and now let's get to the show In 2005, director Ang Lee, stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger, gave the world a tragic picture of toxic masculinity and LGBTQ relations in the 1960s. In 2020, we take a trip to a high-end blended whiskey. The film is Brokeback Mountain. The whiskey is Murray Hill Club. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2005 film Brokeback Mountain. This is a one-shot thing we got going on here. It's nobody's business but ours. You know I ain't queer. Me neither. Brad, we are coming off one of the high points of recording the whole podcast for me. Last week, we looked at Citizen Kane. This week, we are moving into kind of a mini-series of movies from 2005. That year is one of my favorite movie years of all time. I think it's incredibly underappreciated. If you even look through the list of Oscar nominees for this year, it's a really stacked year. I mean, you've got this movie, you've got Crash, Good Night and Good Luck, Capote, Munich. You've got uh, on the more popcorn side of things, you've got King Kong, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The list goes on and on and on. And this movie, Brokeback Mountain, is held up by critics as probably the best film to come out of this year. And so I knew we needed to talk about it. Next week, we're going to look at the movie that actually won Best Picture controversially over this film, uh, the movie Crash. And I'm excited to compare and contrast these two. Brad, you know, I got to ask you right here at the top of the episode, have you ever seen Brokeback Mountain before we watched it for this episode? Bob, I actually have never seen Brokeback Mountain before. This is uh, for a while there. We were on a good run. I had seen a ton of the movies from this season. 
But now, two weeks in a row, we are watching films I had not seen before. Well, that's okay, Brad. You know, uh, you can't win them all. So here, here we are. We've got Brad watching. Thanks, thanks Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate your condescension. Absolutely, man. That's what I'm here for. But in order to supply people who have actually seen this movie before, in addition to me, we are bringing back one of our all-time favorite guest hosts, our frequent collaborator, Jen Lowers. Jen, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. It's been way too long. And uh, we have been kind of going back and forth for a while about what movie uh, you would jump in again into, you know, the fray with us uh, reviewing. And we settled on Brokeback Mountain. I am really excited to have you here talking about this movie. I think you always bring uh, just a fantastic level of appreciation and research with you that really helps balance out the ridiculous things that come out of my mouth and Brad's mouth. So it's it's good to have you here. So today, you know, we're talking about Brokeback Mountain, which, you know, when it came out was a hugely controversial film. This feels like probably one of the first times that, you know, a homosexual relationship was portrayed in, you know, in popular media. And it created a huge uproar and there's all sorts of Oscars stuff. But like before we get into any of that, I think we need to just simply talk about the movie and what better way to do that than to jump right in with some Brad Explains. Yeah, for those of you who are new to the podcast, Brad Explains is America's favorite segment from our show. It's where Brad reviews the movie and breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time, and that is the case today. So Brad, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say from your first viewing. Can you offer our listeners a spoiler-filled run-through of the movie Brokeback Mountain? So Brokeback Mountain is a film about two cowboys who grow up in Wyoming and they meet each other on a job herding sheep on a mountain called Brokeback Mountain. Uh, Their job is to keep the sheep up there for the entire summer so that they can graze. And then before the winter storms come in, you know, they'll bring them back down into the valley uh, and, and they get paid for a summer's worth of work. And while they're spending time with the sheep up on the mountain, uh, they they slowly realize that there's an attraction between the two of them and they have a budding, blossoming relationship uh, between the two men. Uh, one man is Ennis Del Mar, who is a pretty uneducated, uh, rough and tumble cowboy who who isn't really in touch with his feelings. The other is Jack Twist, a pretty wild and crazy rodeo cowboy who is taking the job over the summer to kind of get off the the rodeo circuit for a little bit. And uh, throughout the summer, you you kind of see this this loving relationship blossom and move forward. And then we cut away from the end of this this summer where there's an argument and a fight between the two of them as the summer comes to a close. And each man goes its their separate way. Ennis ends up marrying uh, the girl that he was engaged to. And they have a few children together, and they continue to struggle to put food on the table and make ends meet. Uh, Meanwhile, Jack goes down to Texas and rejoins the rodeo circuit, meets the girl, you know, the girl, quote unquote, of his dreams that uh, has a wealthy father and is really beautiful and feisty. And they get married and have a child of their own. And you kind of see the two men live different lives. Jack lives a life of, you know, somewhat luxury uh, as he works for his now father-in-law. While Ennis is trying, you know, once again, just trying to make ends meet and provide for his family. Eventually, Jack reaches back out to Ennis and they reconnect and go on fishing trips. 
And you kind of see how over the years that pass during the film that they continue to reconnect once or twice a year and go on these fishing trips and continue their love affair um, while, while cheating on their wives. They're, they're trying to figure out what it means to live this double life of, of having homosexual attraction uh, to one another while also being married and living in, you know, the Wild West of the 1960s and 70s. By the end of the film, we find out that Jack has been outed and that he is murdered by other people in his town. Uh, just kind of like Ennis predicted what would happen is if they had decided to live together on a ranch. And Ennis uh, kind of quietly moves on with his life and visits Jack's family and, and tries to find some sense of closure. And by the end of the film, you, you get this sense that Ennis is just going to kind of keep on living his life. And, and you have a somewhat hopeful look towards the future, but a pretty sad look at the past. And, and that's, that's where the movie ends. It's, it's not a happy ending. It, it feels like a pretty raw and honest ending. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, this movie is really the story of kind of a tragic romance. And I really appreciate that about the movie. I, I love that uh, they lean really heavily into looking at the fallout of what this relationship does in both men's lives. And they're like you said, Brad, it's very raw in that way. And it's complicated and it's complex. And there's a lot of kind of ambiguity in are they doing the right thing? Are they doing the wrong thing in terms of, you know, stringing along their wives and things like that? And that's why I think this movie is so ripe for discussion. And so I'm glad to have both of you on board today to talk about this movie. And I guess I don't really know how much further we can go without talking about our two leads. This movie has a great cast, um, and I'm sure we'll get to talking about quite a few of the supporting performances as well, but it really does ride on the performances of these young actors, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. So I'd love to hear both of your reactions to the lead performances. Uh, did one of them work better or worse for you? Uh, what do you have to say about the performances of our two leads in this movie? I thought the performances of the two leads were fantastic in this movie. I think that, first of all, it was amazing to see two A-list stars I guess, be willing to take on these roles in 2005. So that was really cool. But also, um, I think that Jake Gyllenhaal, he brought a lot uh, just naturally to the performance that I think added to the emotional aspect of their relationship. Um, I just kept, as I saw him look in, into like the rearview mirror or just do any kind of subtle action, I felt just so emotionally connected to him, um, just based on kind of his, his eyes and his body language and kind of what he looks like. He's someone who's just really, he looks really likable. Um, but I felt that Heath Ledger, this was his best performance, I think, that he gave during his acting career. Um, even though I'm a huge fan of The Dark Knight, and I know that's kind of a bold statement, but I think that he really, he brings so much to this performance that he says with his eyes, with his body language. You can tell he really put a lot of effort into it, but he made it look effortless, if that makes sense. There's a lot of YouTube videos analyzing like his body language and all sorts of things, just because he, he put so much intentionality into every kind of movement or eye roll or just everything that he did with his, with his eyes and his body. Yeah, Jen, I completely agree with you about Heath Ledger. And I want to touch just for a second on something you said right at the beginning uh, of your analysis there, that 
it really was out of the ordinary for two actors of this caliber and, and, you know, straight men to take on a role like this in 2005. Like, this was obviously not the first movie ever made about gay people. Queer cinema has a really long history, but this was one of the first movies to really break through in the mainstream, to really get a ton of mainstream recognition and attention. And I think in a lot of ways, we, we kind of forget because it was, you know, it was 15 years ago, but it was only 15 years ago that a movie of this caliber came out starring two straight guys playing a couple in a homosexual relationship. And I think that you really, first of all, have to give credit to Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal just for kind of the gutsiness that it took to take on these roles. But then when I look at both of them again, I think about the fact that Gyllenhaal was basically 24 when they made this movie. Heath Ledger was 25 when they made this movie. It kind of reminds me in a way, we talked last week about Orson Welles making Citizen Kane when he was 25 years old. I'm kind of blown away at the level of emotion and the layered, complex characters that these two guys are capable of playing in a movie like this at 25 years old, especially Heath Ledger. Like the word I kept thinking of for him was tortured. Like he just conveyed a tortured soul so perfectly in this movie. And it's really shocking to me to, to look back on, you know, how young these guys were in retrospect and how well they carry this movie as such young people. I will say I, I a big struggle for me throughout the movie was uh, probably the costuming and uh, not even costuming, probably the makeup design. I don't feel like Heath Ledger especially, but I don't feel like either he or Jake Gyllenhaal aged more than like three or four years from the start of the movie to the end. And, and I think that that really. But Brad, they, they was, gave him a mustache. Of course, he's older that, now. <laughs> <laughs> he has to be 40 because he has a mustache now. I mean, it, it, they were kind of creepy mustaches. Uh, <laughs> They're really rocking that 70s stash, man. Dude, I will say the 70s costuming was amazing in this. Um, but but in the end, I don't feel like either character aged more than a day in this movie. Like at the end of the film, you know, the final scene you see Jake Gyllenhaal in, he still looks like he's about 25 to 30. The final scene that you see Heath Ledger in, he looks like he's like 25 to 30. And I feel like that was just a really obvious thing that they could have done a better job with that I was just kind of like, what? Why does it look like he's still the same age he was at the start of the movie, and yet they're talking about his 19-year-old daughter getting married? Mm. <laughs> I, I was just very confused by that. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of noticed it as well, Brad. Like, Heath Ledger, there was this one scene right near the end where he is uh, kind of looking up. It's the scene with Linda Cardellini in the diner when, she, when yeah. she confronts him and is like, where have you been? And he's looking up from under the brim of his, ca his cowboy hat, and there's kind of shadow underneath his eyes, and you can see where they're applying the makeup because it looks like flaky yep. skin kind of. And I was like, oh, that's a really like, why did they keep that shot in the movie? The makeup looks terrible. And then you really don't see Jake Gyllenhaal again for the rest of the movie because you find out he's been murdered. And Heath Ledger goes to talk to Gyllenhaal's parents and he walks up to Gyllenhaal's old bedroom. And even the way he's walking, I'm like, oh, yeah, dude, you're not conveying like a 45 year old man right now. You're conveying a 25 year old man. And so you're right, Brad. I think there are like minute things in this movie that I, you know, if I had, if I was directing this movie, I would have taken another take of that or something like that. But I think for the most part, I believed it, I think, more than you did, that these characters were aging. Yeah, it, it was just one of those things that I, I slowly started to notice throughout the film where I was like, 
these still look like young kids. They don't look like older, you know, middle-aged men. And it kind of pulled me out of it a little bit. And and even like Linda Cardellini, I I love her. I, I think she's a spectacular actress. I wish that she was in more. But even when she became, you know, attracted to Heath Ledger in this film, there's a part of me that's like, she looks like she was a lot older than him. Hmm. And that caused me to go, what what's going on here? And so, you know, it, it might be a minor thing in the end. It might have just been like, hey, we could have hired somebody better for makeup. But it did kind of make a big difference for me as I was watching the movie. Yeah, I agree with you, with both of you on that point. I think that they definitely could have done a better job with the aging, especially with the makeup. Well, I think it's good that we all have at least some some little quibble with this movie, a, a nitpick that we can bring to the table. I do want to talk a little bit about, before we get into any other performances, though, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the technical aspects of this movie, because I was really blown away right from the get-go with the visuals. You know, and I don't think this movie is really flashy in how it presents itself, and it's really easy to make a shot look pretty when you're shooting beautiful mountains in the background. I understand that, but... I was really blown away at the framing of a lot of the shots in this movie. Even right at the beginning, one of the first shots we see of Heath Ledger is him waiting outside this trailer uh, for like the foreman to get there so he can go inside and ask for a job. And just the way they frame him against that that monochromatic outside of a trailer slumped over. You can tell that he already has the weight of the world on his shoulders. I really loved the camera work in this movie, and I loved how... Again, it wasn't calling attention to itself, but they used it so well to place these characters within the frame in a way that told us exactly what we needed to know about them without them ever having to say a word. I don't know. Did the visual stick out to either of you? Oh, my gosh. The cinematography is so amazing in this movie. I think that you almost forget that it's so beautiful after a while because everything in the movie is so beautiful. Mm. Um, and I think that the music also seamlessly weaves with the cinematography at just the right moments to where in a quiet moment where they're kind of just living their day-to-day -day lives um, with their wives and their children, I think that it, I, I guess the music blends so well with the cinematography in those quiet moments of the film that you just kind of even forget that there's even music playing. And mm. I think that, uh, I don't know how they did that, but they combined the music so well with the cinematography that I was just blown away by that in particular. Yeah, the music in this film, there's something about it that it was unobtrusive. It it never was like in your face or forcing you to a specific place. I feel like it just reinforced the emotions that were already present. And, and you really found those emotions because of the acting performances of, you know, Heath and Jake. I wish I knew how to quit you. Then why don't you? Why don't you just let me be, huh? Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. And and even beyond that, there there really were so many beautiful shots in this movie, and some of them were super simple, like. For me, one of my favorite shots in the film was when, you know, the the sheep had been all mingled with this other uh, flock of sheep. And you get a close up of, of Jake Hall and Heath Ledger. And they're like, you know, how are we going to do this? And then the, the camera like it, it, it cuts to a different shot where you just see all of the sheep mingled together and you feel 
the weight of trying to sift out all of these sheep one herd from the other. And it's just simple shots like that where you just go, man, like Ang Lee just knew what he was doing in this movie. Absolutely. I think it's really hard to spot in a movie like this. Jen, you you used the perfect word. You said it's a quiet movie or that it has quiet moments. I think quiet could apply to pretty much everything about this movie. And it really takes a, a pretty trained eye, I think, someone who's seen a lot of movies to be able to tell when a movie this quiet has a master behind the camera. Because, again, like the music's not calling attention to itself. Ang Lee is not putting the camera in these ridiculous setups where it's like following people for five. You know, it's not like when we watch The Revenant, Brad, and, and you're following Leo for five minutes at a time. The camera work is not calling attention to itself in any way. And yet I think some of the shots in this movie are like iconic shots in in cinema. I'm thinking of the scene where um, they go to like the 4th of July celebration and and someone's making comments behind Ennis and he's so full of rage that he beats these guys up and you get this incredible shot of the fireworks going off behind him as he stands there and is dealing with this emotion that he doesn't know how to deal with. And it's obviously like it's a really symbolic shot. I think, you know, if we were in a film studies class, it'd be really easy for us to say, oh, like this shot is a representation of blah, blah, blah. But even in a shot like that, Ang Lee is not he's not like beating it over your head. He's not trying to manipulate you with cool camera work. It's just a beautifully composed, really simple shot. And I think that's one of the things I love about this movie is that even a director as accomplished as Ang Lee kind of takes a backseat to the story and says like, no, I want the story to be the thing that that moves this movie forward, that propels us. It's not going to be me, you know, using fancy camera tricks. Brad, we watched an Ang Lee movie already this season for the podcast when we watched Life of Pi. And that movie is completely different in terms of what kind of visual presentation it offers. And yet, like, you know, when I think about it, I do see some similarities in terms of like how Ang Lee sets up the camera and and things like that. But I love that he wasn't going like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon on this. He just kind of put the camera down in one spot and let the actors act. Honestly, Bob, I I think that one of the most beautiful things about this movie is, you know, going from just letting the actors act. The script in this movie is great. Like, not only do you have tons of great, like, one-liners in this movie, like when Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal are kind of messing around in their car, and, you know, she kind of stops for a second and goes, oh, am I going too fast? (laughs) And Jake Gyllenhaal goes, well, I don't know about too fast or too slow, but I sure like the direction you're heading in. Right, right. <laughs> like there's great lines like that. But then you also have just such perfectly scripted scenes. Like honestly, what is probably my favorite scene in the movie when it's the Thanksgiving dinner and Jake Gyllenhaal's father-in-law is like, you know, just just being a dick. Like there's just no way around it. And Jake Gyllenhaal finally stands up to him. You sit down, you old son of a bitch. This is my house, this is my child, and you are my guest. You sit down before I knock your ignorant ass in the next week. And, like, shuts the TV off, shuts his father-in-law down, and you see Anne Hathaway, like, kind of quietly smiling and looking at her son like, yeah, that's your dad. Like, the, like scenes like that are just so well-scripted. And like you said, Bob, Ang Lee doesn't get in the way of that with some sort of fancy camera work. He just allows the actors to act and just to flesh out who their characters really are. I think that's a great point. And I want to press in a little bit on the script of this movie because 
you know, this was adapted from a short story and the script for this movie wins the Oscar for best adapted screenplay. I think it's a phenomenal script. Just like you said, Brad, the dialogue is so well written, but even the scenes where, you know, they, they complete basic tasks and you don't necessarily get a lot of dialogue, they make it count. And I started noticing, you know, in the early scenes of the movie where they're just up on the mountain getting to know each other for the first time, almost all of the dialogue kind of has a double meaning to it. There's some double entendre going on. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal says something about the, the foreman that sent them up there. He says he's got no right making us do something against the rules. And then they immediately cut to Heath Ledger. And you can tell he's grappling with this idea of doing something against the rules because you know for for what he says about himself he's a straight man and he's starting to become attracted to jack and they really kind of hammer in in a couple quick lines this idea that ennis is a person who is used to doing things according to the rules and he views this relationship as something that is like outside the bounds of the rules and you get it not by like some long speech where they where ennis says this is how i live my life and it's against the rules no, you get it through other people's dialogue and some really brilliant edits on Ang Lee's part to show us the inner, you know, turmoil of Heath Ledger's character. In this movie, Heath Ledger kind of reminds me of Marlon Brando in that he just says so much with his eyes and so much with his face that um, it really adds a lot to the script, even though it's not supplying it with dialogue. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And like, this is one of those movies, again, we kind of talked about this last week. I keep going back to Citizen Kane, but we talked about how you can't really talk about the writing without talking about the direction. And you can't talk about the direction without talking about the actors. And I think that's a sign of a well-made movie. That's a sign of people working in sync with each other. You know, I started out talking about the script and, and Jen, you're t you go right back to Heath Ledger's performance. And I think they really did find that great synthesis between what was on the page, how Ang Lee knew you know, what to do with the camera and how the actors knew how to play these characters. It really does seem like one of those great moments in movies where everyone is on the same page. And when it comes to the Film Whiskey podcast, it doesn't really feel like we can talk about movies without also trying a little bit of whiskey. So, Bob, how about we get over to this Murray Hill? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Murray Hill Club. Now, this is a blended whiskey that's brought to us by the Joseph A. Magnus and Company. We're actually trying Magnus on a different episode later on in the season, but this is from the same company. Brad, this is a blended whiskey, uh, meaning it, in some ways it's kind of like what we drank when we did Seagram 7. It's like whiskey that's blended with other spirits. But in this case, it's a very interesting blended whiskey because it is a blend of 18-year-old bourbon and 11-year-old bourbon that they then blend with nine-year-old what they call light whiskey. So I don't know if that means that the, the light whiskey was stored in uncharred barrels or if it was, you know, charred in reused barrels. 
But the reason they don't call this a blended bourbon is that something about that light whiskey doesn't meet the requirements of bourbon. And so even when they add the 18 and the 11-year-old bourbons into this blend, it can still not be called bourbon because not all the things going into it are bourbon, technically. Indubitably, it does not deserve to be called bourbon, my friend. <laughs> Good, my <Ooh>. man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, honestly, Bob, I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't really give a rip if something's called bourbon or not anymore. Yeah. I just want to taste a really good whiskey. And honestly, from what I'm getting so far, this whiskey, it smells really nice. The color, it's it's got a nice kind of honey yellow color to it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with a little bit of depth. There's a little bit of brownness to it. Yeah, um, The legs aren't super thick. Uh, it seems like it's a little bit lower proof. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited about it, bourbon or not bourbon. Yeah, I mean, I'm at the point now, too, where I'm seeing people online in bourbon, you know, forums and stuff arguing about is bourbon that's finished in other barrels still bourbon or do you consider that flavored whiskey? And I'm like, listen, guys, like you, <laughs> you are forgetting what it means to be a bourbon drinker or a whiskey drinker. Like, I don't care what they call it. Is what's in the bottle good is all I care about at this point. And Brad, from what you're saying and from what I'm picking up as well on the nose of this, this seems like a pretty darn good whiskey so far. It really does. You know, as I nose this, I'm getting a little bit of citrus. Uh, There's some vanilla. There is a little bit of caramel. It's sweet. Um, It's not very alcohol forward. I'm really enjoying this nose so far. Yeah, I mean, I'm really I'm picking up a lot of toffee, a lot of caramel and vanilla. It's like your your great dark bourbon notes, uh, but then you get a lot of oak with it too. And the great thing about it is I feel like the oak is kind of an underlying thing. And I, I can just tell already we're going to get a lot of oak on the taste, I think, because we're dealing with 18, 11, and 9-year-old whiskeys. So you're really going to have a lot of that being extracted from the wood. But I think sometimes when we drink aged whiskeys, the oak takes over, especially on bourbons. And I think maybe something going on in the blend here is allowing those great bourbony notes to like still override the oak. And I'm really enjoying this. I think I'm going to give it an eight on the nose. I was right there with you. I was just kind of thinking about my score. Eight is is it's right on the nose, Bob. Well, I tend to be <laughs> like that, Brad. So, you know, don't act so surprised. <laughs> Bob, let's get into drinking this Murray Hill. Oh, man, that's strong. Yeah. Whew. What proof is this? 103. Oh, wow. So the alcohol on this is immediately present, like right up front, tip of my tongue. I got the tingle and I was like, all right, this is what (laughs) this is what we're dealing with here. As it develops on my palate, it's not super sweet. It it tastes like, you know, it it tastes like fermented corn, to be quite honest with you. It's um. It's a more of a sour flavor, and I think a lot of that oak is present. It's really spicy. Um, it's kind of in that, I don't want to call this harsh, Brad, but I, I, it's kind of in that range of, you know, 100 to 110 proof whiskeys that I say sometimes the alcohol forwardness of those whiskeys is even stronger than like a barrel proof for some reason, and I'm, I'm really getting that here. This one packs a punch. Yeah, it really does. And honestly, Bob, I'm pretty disappointed after that nose. Uh, the The flavor is there. There's some sweetness. There's that oakiness and spiciness there that is interesting. But honestly, it it feels like the ethanol just overrides all of that. And I'm really just stuck focusing on how the Kentucky hug starts at the tip of my tongue. And I don't know if I'm a big fan of that. I, I think I'm going to give it a five and a half on the taste. 
Yeah, Brad, I think I'll give it a six. It's, I mean, it's not the worst thing I've ever tasted at this proof point, but it is, I mean, it's just very, very strong. And that takes us to finish. I will say kind of happily that uh, the Kentucky hug, you know, the chest burn on this going down isn't as strong as I was expecting it to be after what I got on the palate. Uh, it's a medium finish, I would say. It lingers on the palate, but it's pretty mouthwatering. It's not sweet. It's kind of bitter and oaky, um, but it it isn't overpowering and it's not harsh. And so I think the finish is actually a step up from the taste. I'm going to give the finish a 7 out of 10. Uh, I'm pretty close there with you. The f- The finish is decent. It's above average, but it's not the best finish I've ever had. I'm going to give it a 6.5. Well, that takes us to overall balance. That's where we compare nose, taste, and finish as one unit. Does this move nicely through those, or does one of them stand out in a positive or negative way above or below the others? Brad, how do you feel about this? Was it well-balanced in your opinion? Not really. The The nose promised me a lot of things that I didn't uh, that it didn't follow through on. Um, it, it's not the worst balanced whiskey that I've ever had, though. Like, th- There's definitely the same notes that you get at the start to the finish. But overall, it's just an okay balanced whiskey. I'm going to give it a five and a half on balance. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of right there with you, Brad. This is a decent whiskey. I think it really would appeal to a large portion of bourbon drinkers, but it's a little harsh for me. I think I'm going to give it a six on overall balance. And that brings us to our overall value score. This is where we take, you know, all of those flavor scores and subject them to the almighty dollar. Now, this bottle of Murray Hill... Bob, it is not a cheap one. In fact, it will set you back in the state of Ohio $99.99. And I will tell you what, that is a massive amount of money for a pretty underwhelming uh, whiskey considering the price point. Yeah, Brad, this is something that, you know, Joseph Magnus, the company that makes this, they build themselves as a really high-end kind of bourbon premier boutique kind of place. And basically what they're doing is they are getting sourced whiskey and they're blending it together, which is not unusual. And and it happens with a lot of companies. But, you know, there's just something about the price point where I'm like, I have nothing against sourced whiskey, but I'm like, man, you're you're not even making the whiskey. You're just blending it together and putting it in a bottle. And then you're going to sell it to me for a hundred dollars a bottle. Now, again, like, it's 18 year on the high end. So like I would expect it to be kind of pricier, but man, I, I cannot justify a ninety nine ninety nine price tag. Brad, what kind of score are you going to give this? I, I don't want to give it a one. I, I'll give it a one and a half. Wow. A one and a... Bob, I would I wouldn't pay thirty dollars for this. Oh, Brad, come uh, on. I think it's definitely a higher end than a thirty dollar whisk. Just knowing what goes I... into it. I mean, okay, I, I'm probably being pretty unfair. I wouldn't pay $50 for this. How about that? Yeah, I feel like the $60 price range would probably be more appropriate for this. $100 is just like, this is one of those whiskeys where, you know, I feel like this only really happens in the world of whiskey, you know, to the extent that it does, because there, there's barely anything on their website about this. I had to dig through articles and articles to find out that this was even MGP, you know, whiskey going in here and not their own stuff. And it's, it just seems like, you know, if you have fancy enough packaging and you can buy old enough whiskey, then you can sell it at whatever price you want. And it becomes something that people say like, oh, it must be really good. I have to get my hands on it. I don't think that's the case here, Brad. Like, I, I'm right there with you. I'm going to give this a 2 out of 10 on value. And that takes my final score to a 29 out of 50. Brad, what's that take your final score to? I'm pretty much right there with you. 27 out of 50. 
All right, so that takes our overall uh, point value to 56 out of 100 or a 28 out of 50. I do think this is an above average whiskey. It's really cool to drink something that's blended with 18 year in it. I think it's complex. I think that it's very, very, you know, strong alcohol forward spice notes on this. But I'm not going to recommend at this price point. You know, I'll go back to my old adage. If you can find a glass of it or if you're at a friend's house that owns a bottle, I think it's worth trying and it's an enjoyable drink but I cannot recommend that you go out and buy a bottle of this. Yeah, it's an unfortunate way to finish this review because it really started off well with the nose and, and kind of went downhill from there. But what say you, how about we get back into the 2005 drama, Brokeback Mountain? Let's get to it, Brad. Right, so that was Murray Hill Club, a whiskey that Brad and I are both kind of mixed on. We're getting back into talking about Brokeback Mountain, and we are joined by our guest host, Jen Lowers. Jen, you know, in the first half, we talked about Brad's first experience with this movie. I saw this movie when it first came out. When was your first time seeing this movie? Did you see it in theaters, like when it first came out? Did you catch it later on on video? What's your What's your history with this film? So I saw this movie about a year after it came out. So it was released in 2005. I want to say it was 2006 that I saw it. So I, w- I would have been 16 years old at the time. And at that point in my life, um, I was just kind of grappling with my own similar feelings as the characters. I related a lot with Ennis when I first saw this movie as someone who like, had feelings that I, I wouldn't allow myself to act upon or... Uh, in in the same way that Ennis wouldn't. And so I could relate a lot to him when I saw that, and I felt a lot of his pain and a lot of things that he was going through about having to kind of play a role that I didn't necessarily want to play at the time. And so for me, when I watched that movie, it was kind of eye-opening, to be honest with you, because the only other LGBTQ movies I had seen before that were the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Mm. The Birdcage with Robin Williams. And those have very... Um, the portrayals of LGBTQ characters and of gay men are are based very much around stereotypes. And so at sure. the time, I didn't know as a teenager kind of what does it mean to be a gay person or kind of as struggling as someone who was struggling with my own identity at the time. I was kind of looking to pop culture for for portrayals of, you know, like what are gay people like and what are their personalities like? What are their characteristics like? Seeing those kinds of I guess, um, really, those portrayals that were really much based upon stereotypes, this was the first movie I saw that really took this content seriously, took an LGBTQ love story and really treated it with, I guess, just so much care and respect, which you can actually tell just based on the intricate filmmaking and how they take Mm -hmm. so much time with the cinematography and the music and everything to kind of make this love story be portrayed in the best light that it can be. I thought that that was so amazing at the time because I had never seen that before, 
that it really meant a lot to me. Um, and I think that even 15 years later, it felt like this movie could have been made yesterday. Absolutely. Well, and especially like, and I don't want to get into like criticizing our culture very much, but especially at a time where I think tensions are very heightened in terms of how we treat, you know, artifacts from the past and whether or not they did it with, with a, a very adept hand. This movie holds up in a, in a cancel culture. Like, let's just I, I call it what it is. There's nothing about this movie that I think wouldn't still be applauded or encouraged by society at large in terms of its portrayal here. And that's saying a lot for a movie that came out 15 years ago. Next week, we're going to look at Crash. And, you know, people love to hate on the movie Crash. I still think it's a good film. But I think that the way we talk about race in America 15 years on has changed dramatically. And the same can be said in, in the conversations we have around LGBTQ issues. And yet this movie, I think, holds up in how it portrays its LGBTQ characters in a way that I was really, really surprised to see. Well, Bob, one of the reasons I think it holds up so well is because the movie isn't simply about a gay relationship between the two main characters in the movie. It's also about this culture of toxic masculinity that you see in the Western, you know, cowboy culture that you don't talk about your feelings, that anger is the solution to all the problems, that you fight your way out of things. And and you see that embodied in Heath Ledger in so many different ways that even if this movie was about a male and a female that loved each other and, you know, were having these issues, it would still be a great movie condemning toxic masculinity. But when you add on the fact that it's also talking about other, you know, sensitive issues in our culture, it, it really does a great job of handling both subjects. Yeah, Brad, I'm actually really glad that you brought up the idea of toxic masculinity kind of represented here in this movie, because, you know, in some ways, this is a movie about how the world around these two characters doesn't allow for healthy male relationships at all. Like, let alone the fact that the world is not accepting of same-sex relationships. It doesn't seem to be accepting of any sort of healthy emotional ties between men at all. These two characters, outside of the time they spend together, are never shown having any meaningful time with another male character in the movie. And I don't think that's an accident. And one of the things that I love the most about this movie is that it doesn't just lean into, like, the erotic love that these two guys share. They spend a lot of time building up the idea that these guys are just really great friends before anything else. Like, I really enjoyed watching the scenes of them build a camaraderie when they're up herding these sheep. And I think, first of all, it, it grounds the movie and it helps it work better in terms of portraying, you know, why this is a long term lasting relationship. But I think it also shows the fact that there's more to this relationship than just the erotic portion of it. And that for a character like Ennis, especially, he has no other positive male role models or figures in his life. And this really is the only healthy relationship on any level that he has with another man. And so yeah, Brad, I was right there with you. In a lot of ways, this movie reminds me a lot of the movie Moonlight that came out a few years ago. And I think it really hit a similar chord about this idea of not just grappling with your identity as a as a gay person in America, but also grappling with what that means in terms of a culture that defines masculinity as pushing down your emotions, as as anger, as the response to everything. And I think both of these movies really capture that really, really beautifully. Oh, yeah, I definitely I think that even the scene that you talked about where Ennis is at the fireworks and he starts uh, fighting that guy because he's cursing in front of his wife and children. I think that that's 
him display it's a way of showing that if you have these repressed homosexual feelings and they're not able to be expressed in a way that you feel is adequate you might resort to violence even so it's not only like causing the repressed people who are having homosexual urges to resort to violence just just based on their kind of repression and anger uh, as a result of that but also the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal is a victim of a hate crime I think that really stuck out to me in this movie because at the time when I saw it as a 16 year old even as someone who identified as gay that wasn't something that was on my radar as something that could happen to me personally I didn't think before I saw this movie, okay, I could be a victim of a hate crime someday if I decide to live my life as an adult, um, as an openly gay person out of the closet. Uh, it just didn't occur to me before I saw this movie. And so it was really powerful the way that Jack was there. And then just suddenly as someone, as if someone you knew in your own life had passed away so suddenly um, you just received that postcard. He receives the postcard that says deceased on it. And that was such a powerful moment because it really, it, the death was so s sudden. And I think that um, anybody could have related to that. And I think it gets back to the strength of the script and the strength of the directing in this movie, because you could take that moment and really milk it. I mean, really make it manipulative and show Ennis grieving and but that wouldn't be true to who he is. That wouldn't be true to the character. A guy who has learned throughout his whole life, not just to suppress these urges that he has, but to to like tamp down any emotion that he can possibly show. I mean, one of the few times we see him cry in this movie, he has to duck into an alleyway and he's like dry heaving because he's not used to having these things come up out of him. And I really love that it still packs like an emotional punch, but that they aren't milking it in like a really manipulative way. I agree. I mean, he just goes into the alleyway and starts punching it as hard as he can. And I was shocked when I saw that scene by the violence. I didn't expect him to be honest because I'm not a violent person to go into the alley and just start hitting things. But it really made me feel so bad for him and so sad because you could see Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Jack, is just looking in the mirror and he's looking back at him, kind of waiting for him to have that reaction. And he keeps it together kind of until he's out of view. And he goes into that alley and starts punching things. And then that guy kind of shows up and he starts cussing at him because he just doesn't even want anybody to see him conveying any type of emotion at all. Well, and I think that jumps you into the scene where Alma basically outs him, you know, quietly just between the two of them, but where, you know, she basically says like, hey, like you went on all these fishing trips, never brought back any fish. I put a note on your line and you basically lied and said you caught fish and, and the note never left the line. And, and, and when you see Heath Ledger's reaction to that, I think you really get a picture of how devastating you know, a deep, dark secret really is to a human being that it utterly shakes him to his core to think about somebody else knowing his secret. And, you know, the way he leaves the house, the way he grabs a hold of her, it, it isn't it. He is expressing anger, but he is not grabbing her out of anger. He is grabbing her out of fear. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I think that Again, like these performances are so, so layered and it really drives home. 
this is a really sad movie. Like, I don't think there's any way to get around that. And it's sad from any angle you want to look at it from. If you want to take the the quote-unquote romantic angle and think of it as, like, you know, these these two star-crossed lovers who were never able to get together, like, it has that tragic romance element, but it also has the sort of family domestic drama going on as well. You know, when Ennis storms out of that house after he grabs Alma, and it's Thanksgiving night, and his daughters are like, bye dad, like bye. And and he's not responding to them because he's so ashamed and angry. It's just like, it's, you're watching marriages fall apart. You're watching people be affected by this relationship. And I think that's also one of the things that this movie does well is it's not commenting on the ethics of much of what's going on. It's not saying like, these two guys were were in love and this is what was right, but society was wrong because whether or not society was wrong, they are members of the society and they have to deal with the fallout of the actions that they take. And so you you do watch and you sympathize and you empathize with Alma, with Anne Hathaway's character as the wife. You sympathize with Linda Cardellini's character as as Heath Ledger's, you know, they don't they never get married, but his next kind of girlfriend after he gets a divorce. And you watch these people's lives become more and more isolated and you watch Heath Ledger basically become that kind of guy that I think we all know, which is like the purposely, willfully sad man. Like he has pushed everyone away and he has chosen to live an existence where he doesn't connect with anybody anymore. And I think that's what I really, really love about this movie is that it doesn't offer simple answers. It operates in shades of gray. There's a ton of ambiguity about people's decisions and whether they made the right ones. And I think that that's really what makes this movie work is it leaves it to the audience to try to piece together, you know, the the tragedy of this love story. I think the most devastating part of the movie was when Ennis goes back to Jack's childhood home and he goes to the closet and you see the shirts hanging inside of each other. I think that's mm-hmm. just the fact that he kept those in the closet and his father kept, he said a few times that, you know, he had some crazy idea that the two of you would move out here together someday. It, it, it showed that he never lost hope. That was heartbreaking for me. Definitely this movie I would classify as a tearjerker. Yeah, it was just a really hard scene to watch. Yeah, but I think even in that scene too, you find out that, because because Gyllenhaal's character had told Heath Ledger, like, I've been fooling around with the wife of this guy in town. And what you really find out is that he's actually been fooling around with the guy and that he was he was trying to cover it up in a way because he'd been so hurt by Heath Ledger. And, and his dad kind of spills the beans on that a little bit, that Jake Gyllenhaal had said that he wanted to bring another guy up, you know, to have a cabin and, and whip the ranch into shape. And so one of the great things about these two characters as well is that. They're not presented as like paragons of, you know, uh, great morals like Heath Ledger is impulsive and violent and angry. And Jake Gyllenhaal is, is characterized by in some ways, like, I guess his fallibility, like he he admits, like, I need things more than you do, Heath Ledger. And I think that it's really great that they allow these two protagonists to be as flawed as they are. And I think it makes for a much stronger movie. Well, and I feel like that kind of brings us to what our final scores are going to be. You know, the, this movie has so many different layers. It's nuanced in a lot of different ways. The The music is beautiful. The cinematography is spectacular. And I, I'm just kind of curious, guys, where does this bring your final score out to? Because I, 
I'm 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 struggling a little bit, and I want to hear where you guys are at. So when I think about which score I would give this one, I I would say a nine out of ten. I think that there's some things about this movie that could have been improved upon, but I do think that it's it's one of, if not the best LGBTQ movie of all time. I would probably prefer this one over Moonlight and say that this would be the best uh, movie with LGBTQ themes of all time. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm right there with you, actually, Jen. I'm going to give this a 9 out of 10. I do think that it's a very slow-paced movie, and I think it's kind of ironic that it came out the same year as Capote, because Capote kind of reminds me of this in terms of its pacing. It's very, you know, what we would say politely is it's deliberately paced. But I really loved that they cut back and forth between their two lives, kind of like one scene with Heath Ledger followed by one scene with Jake Gyllenhaal. But then I I feel like once Jack dies, the movie almost seems like it's in a rush to wrap up. And it just the ending doesn't land for me the way that I want it to land. It's it's powerful. It's emotional. Like you said, Jen, there's like that devastating scene with the shirts. And yet for some reason, like. I think pulling Hall's presence out of the movie completely kind of was a detriment to the overall quality of the film because these two leads are so great and so dynamic that just kind of yanking one of them out of the whole equation, I think took the movie down a peg for me. It's a great movie. I, I'm a huge fan of this film. I think everybody should watch this movie uh, and I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. Yeah, guys, the, the more I think about this movie, the more I, I think that there's a lot of great stuff going on in this film, but I do think that the pacing is just way too slow. It's such a jarring shift when Hall dies. Um, I, I do think that the sexuality in this movie is pretty graphic um, for being an R-rated film, and, and not even just from a from a homosexual standpoint. I, I think the the fact that you see different pairs of breasts in this movie is is taking it further than most R-rated movies. There's certain parts of this film that just don't work great for me. Uh, there, there's certain parts of the script that just go so, so slowly. I just found myself to be incredibly bored through a large part of the movie. And, and it was all peppered with really great scenes that drew me in and kept me captivated by the movie. For me, it's an 8 out of 10. I, I think it's a great movie. It has a lot going for it. But there are some what I would consider to be major issues in the film. Yeah, Brad, I don't think that those are those are invalid points at all. I would probably argue from my standpoint, though, that I think the sexuality in this movie is actually really, really well integrated into the plot. One of my major hangups with film and with violence and with sexuality is when it's gratuitous, when it is not required by the plot and when the director kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, like is getting his jollies, like watching a woman get naked or like when you can imply something, imply it, don't make it explicit. I didn't feel like this tipped into being gratuitous. And I think that I've seen movies since this, both portraying heterosexual and homosexual relationships, where I did feel like the sex was there for the the sake of the sex. There's a movie that came out just a couple years ago that was nominated for Best Picture called Call Me By Your Name, which I think was a really good movie that was ruined by how gratuitous some of the sexuality in that film was. I really thought that Ang Lee did a a really tasteful job here of portraying what needed to be shown. I didn't think it tipped into gratuitousness, um, but I can totally understand why, you know, certain people have different levels of sensitivity to things like the depiction of sexuality on screen. 
But in the end, what we really want to know is what you, Film and Whiskey Nation, have to say about this movie. So if you want to connect with us, find us on all of our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. You can also leave us a message on our Anchor.fm webpage. Just check us out at anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Once again, we want to extend our deepest thanks to our guest host, Jen Lowers. Jen, it is always great to have you on here. Jen is continuing to work on her PhD dissertation. I cannot wait until the day that we bring you on and we can introduce you as Dr. Jen Lowers. Well, thanks again for having me on the show. Next week, we are going to be back talking about the movie that beat Brokeback Mountain for the Best Picture Oscar, 2005's Crash. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. I'm Jen Lowers. And we'll see you next time. 